Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Friends, if you have a Bible, would you please open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We began studying the book of 1 Corinthians on September 12th, 2021. And so for the 43rd time, I'm going to ask you if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word in 1 Corinthians. We'll read chapter 16, and though your order of worship will have more than just one through four, I'm going to only read verses one to four. So please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Men have died to translate this into English for you. And John Huss and John Wycliffe would not have ever even known your names, but they thought it was so important to give God's Word into the hands, not just of the ministers, but also the laity. So we read it with a profound sense of gratitude. Would you please hear it? Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of the Lord, and it stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. In my office, I have several framed pictures, of course, of my beautiful wife and family, of my brothers and father and I on a fishing trip, and this picture. This is the picture of me and Lauren with Dr. John Hanna and his wife, Carolyn. Now, when I was a young seminary student, there was a professor named Dr. John Hanna who taught church history who became more than a professor to me. He became a mentor, a guide, a father of the faith, an incredible encourager. John Hanna took me under his wing and he helped me understand that the reading of Scripture from start to finish is one overarching story of the beauty of God's covenants. John Hanna is the reason why I cannot read John Owen or John Edwards ever without hearing the voice of John Hanna in my head. And I remember one time when I was uh, invited by Dr. Hanna to come to his house, and I drove 
to his house. And I remember thinking, over the misty mountains, I will see his house arise like Hogwarts. It will be beautiful. And in his hallway, there will be hallways of stone with the Puritans just lined up, ushering me to the corridors down to the restroom, you know. And I showed up at his house in the Lake Highlands area of Dallas. And it was just a modest red-bricked house. And I went into, I went into his living room, and, and, and it wasn't a cathedral chair. It was a lazy boy sitting with ESPN on. And I went into his kitchen, and I thought, oh, my gosh, he and, and Carolyn have dishes in their sink just like I do. And I saw by their laundry room, they had their laundry sitting right by the laundry door, just like I had in his back porch. It was obvious that he had had a construction project that looked like it was half finished. And I remember thinking, what did you expect? I feel a little bit like the first time I walked into Dr. John Hanna's house when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Because here we have been in the lofty nosebleed arenas of talking about the resurrection and the beauty of worship and what is love and all these amazing doctrines. And then you come to chapter 16, right? Remember, original chapter divisions and verse divisions were not in the original. But when you come to chapter 16, you expect to find this amazing benediction. And what do you find? He's talking about money. And I don't know what I expected, <laughs> but when I came to the giant of a scholar, this mentor, this great theologian, and I learned that he put his shoes on one at a time, and I remember that when he invited me to go on one of many jogs we went on, he ran with gait, a gait just like mine, and I um, come to the end of 1 Corinthians after 43 sermons, and I think, Really? A sermon on money? But indeed, friends, God's Word is meant to shape us. And what you find at the very end of 1 Corinthians is that exegetically, there are three areas of stewardship that Paul reminds them of. One is money, verses 1 to 4. One is opportunities, 5 to 9. And the third are people, verses 10 through 24. And money, opportunities, people, these are the greatest resources that we as a church also have to yield as we proclaim the beauty that grace changes everything through the gospel. And this morning, I just want to take a moment, and I just want to talk about generosity and money, because that's what God's holy word does. And it takes us into this very interesting situation that I think you'll find um, quite intriguing. So money and generosity. What'd you expect? Here we go. Jerusalem was culturally very conservative and it was strictly Jewish. Corinth, on the other hand, was where you would go to make it big. You would easily get a job in a port city like Corinth and many people in the church had considerable wealth. But in cities like Jerusalem, where one's prosperity depended largely upon Jewish rites and participation in those rites and ceremonies, converts to Christianity 
often struggled economically to find gainful employment because oftentimes when they became Christians, they lost their jobs. And so, the Corinthian Christians had heard about the extra collection, the logeas in Greek, this collection that was being rounded up for the people of Jerusalem. And Paul was, was pulling together money to take care of the Christians in the capital city. And to their credit, Corinth wanted to participate in this collection. And so, Paul makes a logical connection to what does it mean for us to labor. It is not in vain. How do we work out the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain? And immediately Paul says, peri day, now concerning, which is a little Greek reminder that what he is bringing up is something that they asked him about in the letters that they had written to him. And so Paul talks about it, now concerning the, col the collection for the saints. And Paul shows us five essential features of Christian giving. In just these little four verses, he shows us the time of giving, the regularity of giving, the participants in giving, the basis of giving, and the administration or the manner of giving. And is it okay if we just, just let's just talk about these five things, looking at how God's Word helps us understand how we as believers are to be generous. First, the time of giving. Look at verse 2. On the first day. In the earliest days after the ascension, Christians assembled on Sundays to worship in commemoration of the Lord's resurrection. And the Lord had not commanded it, but it quickly became the norm. And Jews would continue to worship on Saturday, and the Christians would worship on Sundays. And in preparation for worship, the Corinthians were to set aside financial contributions to give as part of their worship. And this practice echoes from generations earlier where saints would bring their first fruits to the temple in the time of offering. They would, breathe, they would bring a tithe. And we too, in the same spirit, are to give money in worship with joy for God allots to each of us differing amounts to be stewards of what is already His money, not ours. The time of giving on the first day. Well, what about the regularity of giving? The first day of every week. Do you see that in verse 2? Our giving should be regular. Someone once says that practice um, doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And I remember, um, I remember listening to one of you tell me a story about how when, when, when you were young, you would watch your parents give in the offering plate every week. And you, just by default, give every week as a way of worshiping because you saw your parents practice that for years and years and years. And so, it doesn't make perfect it doesn't make, but it makes permanent. And it has become a habit that you treasure and that you are now helping your children be able to worship as you give as a part of your worship, that Christ has the whole of, you, of all that you are. And our regular giving is part of our labor in the Lord, which is never in vain. Our giving shapes our discipleship. 
It is our habit of remembering that nothing we have has not been given to us first by the Lord Himself. What do you mean? I've earned it. Who put you in the family He put you in? Who gave you the opportunities He gave you? Why didn't He give somebody else the opportunities? Why are you so secure financially? Why, why, why perhaps do you feel like you struggle? Don't you know that the Lord is so much more in control of what you have? And He has offered to you, He's given to you out of His grace to steward resources for His glory. And we are to do it on the first day. We are to do it of every week. And who are the participants? Number three, notice what it says next. Each of you, everyone, Every Christian is assumed to be able to give. And if you have a difficulty giving your money away, ask yourself why. Straight talk. Why is it hard for you? What are you afraid of? Do you not believe that the Lord will take care of you? Has He not provided for you every step of the way? Do you believe that He doesn't have your best in mind? If there are areas of unbelief in your heart, that is where the gospel has to go to work because the promises of God are true for you. Yet it's the practices of our life that actually reveal what our heart deeply treasures and sometimes fiercely protects, even to our detriment. So the time of giving on the first day, the regularity of giving every week, the participants in giving, each of you, the basis of giving as he may prosper. We are to give as God has blessed us, and God would not ask us to give beyond our means. Notice here, there is nothing about giving a precise percentage in this text. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the first fruit offerings that we see in the Old Testament. And indeed, the tithe predated the law, didn't it? Because Abraham was to tithe to Melchizedek even before the Lord gave Moses the law. And it is the regular act of giving of our resources that is part and parcel of what it means to be part of God's covenant community. And so, 10% is a fine place to begin for those who have been especially blessed. And 10% is a great place to work up to for those who are learning the joy of tithing and of giving. The time of giving on the first day, the regularity of giving every week, the participants in giving, each of you, the basis of giving as he may prosper, and what's the administration or the manner of giving? Notice what it says. So that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul wasn't into emotional pleas. He wasn't showing pictures of children who were starving in Africa and saying, would you please now open your wallet? He was saying, there is need here for these dear brothers, your brothers and sisters in the faith, and store up regularly and often for this and future opportunities. And Paul's principle here is very simple. Set aside a little every week regularly so that you will not need to make a major withdrawal from your funds later. And then verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Notice, deacons, notice this, brothers, that, that Paul didn't handle the money himself. 
lest he ever be accused of greed or of wrongdoing. Those whom you accredit by letter will carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems, verse 4, advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In other words, even for the Apostle Paul, there was accountability all the way, as it were, to the bank, to Jerusalem. And so, for those of you who, if you're here for the first time, you can ask other people how often um, we talk about money in this church, but you happen to come on a Sunday where God's Word demands that we talk about it. So we unashamedly do so, and it is good for your hearts for us to give heed to God's Word. But for those of you who are concerned about finances, let me ask you, are you not surrounded by brothers and sisters in this room who also gladly give from what the Lord has blessed them with to the deacon's fund to help you should you find yourself in time of need? Has the Lord not provided for you, brothers and sisters, and those who, rather than be tempted to further damage the peace and purity of the church and be tempted to steal or cut corners, has He not provided for you a resource among us where you can ask for financial help from our deacons to help meet your needs? If there are obstacles in your way for you to feel the freedom to do that, I want to know about them, and so do our deacons. I remember one time a man came to our session meeting in this church, and he came to our session, and he said, I vowed to promote the worship and work in this church, and I promise to fulfill that vow, and I intend to fulfill it. And I want every area of my life to be under Christ's lordship, but I need the session's wisdom because I'm about to navigate an incredibly difficult financial season in my life. And I want to worship by giving, but I do not know how to meet my family's needs with my income right now, given the changes that are about to happen. Can you advise me? <sighs> what faith. you imagine coming to the session and just saying, here I am. I need your help. In the session, said to him, your Father in heaven loves you and sings over you and is so thankful for your faith to be able to come and to bring these things before us. And let us pray with you and walk alongside you. And as we begin to pray together, we begin to listen to this brother's story. We begin to intercede with him. We not only told him how much his Father in heaven delights over him, but how every man in that room was encouraged by his love for Christ's honor. And we encouraged this man to adjust his giving to the church down to barely anything at all as he felt comfortable in order to pay his mortgage and to provide for the basic needs of his family for an agreed-upon season. And then we met with the deacons, and we asked the deacons if they could come alongside us and that they might... Bless him and his wife with a gift so that they could go and enjoy a weekend away together in the midst of such a difficult season of their life. And this man with tears in his eyes drove away from that session meeting, having his session pray over him. And he came home, and you can imagine the conversation. His wife said, well, well how did it go? And he said, as he reported later, it was unlike anything I expected. 
I went in ashamed, and I walked out with a weekend trip for us to Dallas. <laughs> what faith he had to be able to come to the church and say, I want to be able to give, but I'm struggling, and would you help me? Friends, that is what a session helps do. That is what leaders in the church help you walk through. And now this person joyfully gives, and they know who they are outside of the season that they once had to tread that was especially difficult. Many Christians argue whether the tithe, 10% of our income, is still the standard for our giving in the church. And, and most who want to argue about that want to show that less than 10% is fine. But Paul parries the whole debate in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for his, your sake he became poor, so that through you, through his poverty, you who were poor might become rich, covered in his righteousness. And Christ's self-giving love is to be the standard for our giving, not just of our finances, but for the whole of our life. And in our joy, we are to aim to emulate Christ's own self-sacrifice. And in light of such a challenge, in such beauty, who could satisfy himself with asking merely, how little a percentage must I give? Because he has lavished upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Charles Spurgeon tells a story that I've shared before about, about a young farmer in the village who comes to the king. And one day, he, this farmer had this huge carrot that he grew, and he took this carrot, biggest carrot he's ever grown, and he took this carrot, and he brought this carrot to the king. And he sets this carrot before the king, and he says, my Lord, this is the greatest thing I've ever grown or ever will grow, and I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect, because you are a great king, and I just want you to have it. And the farmer turned to leave, and the king said, wait, wait, wait. I see that you're a good man who I can trust. I own the land right next to your garden, and I'm not using it. And I want you to have it. Just take it. The garden, you can expand to the whole thing. Take it, the land, it's yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. And there was a, a, a nobleman who was at his court who saw this conversation happen. And he, he said, if you get that many acres for a carrot, what would you give for? And he goes, ah, oh, I have a horse. And so he goes and he gets his horse. And he comes before the king and he says, king, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the finest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. And I want you to have it as a token of my esteem and my respect just because of how great a king you are. And the king says, thank you. That'll be all. <laughs> and the man starts to walk away. And then he says, oh, 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 wait. And the king looked at the man who had, the king had him figured out. And he said, look, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you're giving yourself the horse. The gardener has given me what he gave for my sake, but you're giving me what you're giving me for your sake. And friends, it is a travesty to hear sermons about giving like this and to be able to walk away and say, well, the message today was about how I should start to give. That is not the point of the message. 
Because you can be incredibly generous and not do anything for people or for this church or for the glory of God when it's all about you. Practically speaking, how are we to make advances in understanding how to give in light of the gospel? Well, number one, you are to pray for a generous heart that gives like the farmer gave the carrot, not like the nobleman gave the horse. You are to ask, Lord, would you give me opportunities to be able to be generous? Are you praying that way? Would you consider it? Number two, a lifestyle cap. When you find yourself making more money, you ought to also give more as you may prosper. If you're a wealthier than you used to be, have you, you've done more to increase your standard of living? Have you done more to increase your standard of living or have you done more to increase your standard of giving? Do you have a lifestyle cap? Or are you always chasing the Joneses? Affluenza is a terrible disease. Accountability. Set goals and talk to someone about what those goals might be. If you don't have someone that um, you have, then begin to pray about who that might be, someone that you're not threatened by, that you can begin to talk about the way that you give. Sex and money, we don't talk about them nearly as much as Jesus did. And four, a tithe is a great place to start. Regardless of whether you want to argue about Old Testament requirements, whether that's a binding prescription upon us or not, it is hard to imagine that Western Christians who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and enjoy such great prosperity would give less in proportion than what the poorest Israelite once gave. Statistics consistently show that Protestants give less than 3% of their income to their churches, and a tithe for most churchgoers would be a great place to start. Now, it's interesting that on this side of COVID, I just want to also encourage you that giving from evangelical Christians around the world has actually gone up in the last several years. Uh, for example, um, the, uh, the Evangelical uh, Organization for Financial Credit and Accountability reports that every orphan care ministry that they included in their survey saw an increase in donations, and so did 93% of homeless ministries over the last several years. That's amazing. Nearly 8 out of 10 pregnancy resource centers saw an increase in financial support over the last three years. Donation to anti-human trafficking ministries increased by 29%. Giving to K-12 through education increased by 18%. And giving to church planting went up by 12%. That's remarkable. Praise God. Individual giving to U.S. charities overall increased only by 0.2% according to data from Giving USA. The only two categories of Christian ministry that saw decreases in giving were alcohol and drug rehabilitation centers and student and youth ministry giving for programs like Young Life, which decreased by 2.9%. Our giving is a reflection of our new nature. And we give not because we are um, uh, 
manipulated to give. We give out of the joyful abundance of our heart. But some of us give a lot, and I just want to just challenge some of you who are giving, like the nobleman gave the horse, to just check yourself. There, um, to illustrate it, there was, there was a, a, a whale that they were studying that was just this incredibly powerful animal that they were watching very closely. And he would move his tail, and they were recording how he was moving his tail, and they were watching it, and there were cameras all around this, this, this whale. And this whale was providing enormous amounts of information the problem was the whale was beached, and he was moving like crazy, trying to get himself back to water, but he wasn't going anywhere. And some of you who are trying by your good works to go somewhere are like the beached whale. You are doing a lot of moving, but you're not moving anywhere except sinking yourself more deeply into the sand. And they had to get the whale to stop moving in order for them to lift him back into the water. But when you are a whale in water, when you begin to move your tail, it's according to your nature. You swim and you feel the joy of all that God has created you to be. And we need to give like the farmer who gave the carrot, like the whale who's not on the beach, but he's in the ocean. We just do it because it's our nature to gladly give. Why is it that the church, in the early church, saw that one of the principal ways of discipleship involved the way they gave. They met together often. They shared so much. And some of you, oh, I could tell stories after story of how you have been so gracious and generous to one another. And I just want to say to you, please keep going. Thank you. But unless something happens in the radical center, all of your morality, all of your effort will be for you and not for the Lord. And the signs of the gospel of grace being at work in your life is that you turn from how much I should give and you see the beauty of your Savior who though was rich became poor for you so that you in your poverty of sin might become rich covered in His righteousness. And when you find yourself in the private intimate areas of your life, thinking about these things that you are so possessive of, and you say before the Lord, Lord, you can have all of me, but not this. That is where the gospel has to go to work. And the only way to get out of that is to look to Christ, who, as the great hymn says, who was rich beyond all splendor and all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. You know the hymn? Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping low but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what Thou would have us to be. Thou who art love beyond our telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Friends, in the final lines of 1 Corinthians, we find these ordinary habits and discipline of regular giving, and as we'll look at next week, of warm hospitality, 
and of extending the gospel in the ordinary warp and wolf of daily life to be the way that we are to live out our discipleship today. And we do so fueled by the beauty of God's covenant promises to us. He's got you. And unlike Dr. Hannah, who became more ordinary and common the longer that I came to know him, Jesus becomes more extraordinary and beautiful the longer that you see him. What self-giving love? What sacrifice? What intimate knowledge he has of your sin, and yet for his own glory, he bore your burdens and shame on the cross. He became poor so that you might be covered in the riches of his righteousness. He was cast out so that you could be invited in. May we be ready to give and have postures of hospitality to those in need with the truth and with the love and with the grace that we ourselves have received from Christ and are now by His Spirit made ready and willing when called upon to graciously give for His glory and for His goodness. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to be those who are generous? Would you help us to be generous because we trust you? Would you help us to be generous because we want you to have the whole of our life, even those areas that we hold so dear to our hearts? And Father, I pray that you would remind us again and again of the manifold beauties of your mercy and grace. Would you, Father, become more extraordinary and more beautiful as we gaze upon your beauty? And as we now prepare to give of our tithes and offerings, Lord, may we do that as just a small token of our self-giving love back to you, all that you have given to us. And I pray as we prepare for the supper, so that we would be able to yield the whole of our lives to you in repentance and faith. Ask whatever you would want of us, Lord Christ, our King, and may we in joyful surrender offer it to you. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.